Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the Defense Information System Agency, DISA's, hosting a compute center? How is the hack transforming the way DISA does business? And what does the future hold for DISA's hosting a compute center? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Sharon Woods, Director of the Hosting and Compute Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA. Sharon, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate the chance to talk about the Hosting and Compute Center. Well, that's great. Let's start off there because I'd like to understand the history and mission of DISA's uh, Hosting and Compute Center. How does it support the overall mission of DISA? Sure. So the Hosting and Compute Center was established last year, October 1st, 2021, and that was part of a larger reorganization uh, underneath DISA. In terms of supporting uh, Lieutenant General Skinner's vision for the agency and the strategic plan, he is very much focused on speed. He calls it velocity of action to win. And so, you know, the hosting and compute center, uh, what we affectionately call the hack, uh, we've really taken that to heart. And so we set up an action plan um, that lays out our vision, our mission, our strategic goals, and the intent is that nests underneath the five lines of effort that he laid out. So the HACK's vision uh, is to be the provider of choice for hosting and compute for the warfighter, and our mission in line with that is to provide best value hosting and compute solutions. That's wonderful. Good context. So to do that requires an organization. I was wondering, how does it operate? What are the specific duties and responsibilities as their director? So maybe you could give us a little bit more about how your organization works. Sure. So as the director, I am very much focused on transformation and transformation of our people, processes, and tools so that we get at that North Star, at that vision of being the provider of choice for hosting and compute. I have a lot of trust in the workforce. I think it's important to trust the workforce to do their job day to day. It's not my job to get in the weeds on those day to day taskings. I'm really trying to lay out the vision for the organization so that we can transform and be that provider of choice. So from a people standpoint, I'm looking to empower the workforce. You know, I want them to be the ones engaged, driving the mission forward, feeling connected to the mission. Part of that is continuous learning. So one of our strategic goals is uh, getting after the technician of the future, you know, appointing a senior training champion so that we can do that gap analysis and understand what do our people need so that they can be the best versions of you know, themselves in a professional environment. Uh, from a processes standpoint, the hack is driving towards being the department's premier agile organization. It's not just about agile development of the technology, it's really a mentality of breaking things down 
into bite-sized pieces, getting after micro successes so that, you know, as conditions change, you can pivot very quickly when you're moving in small iterations rather than that big bang approach. Uh, and then from a tool standpoint, uh, and right in line with our, our mission of providing best value hosting and compute solutions, we want to be the best value hybrid cloud provider. You know, it isn't just data center versus cloud. There's a spectrum of hosting and compute platforms. So we're driving towards unifying those hosting and compute platforms, being an honest broker, providing optionality for our customers uh, and, and driving at the North Star. Yeah, it's it's got to be a challenging uh, role and effort to do what you've just laid out. So I was wondering if you could share with us some of your top management challenges in, in, in making it happen uh, in your position and how have you sought to address those challenges? Yeah, so we have a, a 2000 plus organization. Uh, our, our folks are globally dispersed, so they're not just in the United States. And there's a lot of diversity in that workforce. So certainly that creates challenges unto itself. From my perspective, the challenges are less about the technology and more about organizational change management, empowering the workforce and trust across the workforce and leadership. If you don't have that, everything else is a house of cards and just falls flat. And so to get after that kind of thing, communication is key. So I'm doing monthly town halls with a lot of, you know, q and I've been getting out to all of our locations and spending time, not with just leadership, but at the working level as well, and giving them a chance to talk directly to me rather than through a chain of command. Uh, and we also have an automated anonymous suggestion box. So if folks aren't comfortable with their name being associated with something, there's a very easy way for them to go online and make a suggestion. So from my perspective, the more that I can help the workforce connect with the mission, the more that becomes a springboard for the hack to achieve its vision. So Sharon, since taking over your role as director of the hack, um, what has surprised you most? So one of the things that really surprised me was that the strategic goal the workforce is most excited about out of the 10 that we laid out is driving towards technician of the future. You know, I wasn't sure if people, you know, are comfortable with what they're doing, they want to keep doing what they're doing, and they don't want to rock the boat. Well, I have found the complete opposite, that people want to expand their skill set beyond their current skills, that they want to collaborate more and be more integrated across the board, across the entire organization, not just in their silo. And so, you know, that requires a lot of energy and commitment from our personnel, and they're really stepping up to the plate and and asking for a lot in that area. Uh, and so we're doing our best to meet them in the middle. Could you tell us more about yourself, your career path, and more importantly, what is what has gotten you to this new sort of leadership role? So I had a bit of an atypical career path. I actually started out as an acquisition attorney specializing in information technology with the Department of the Navy. And um, what I found as I connected with the mission more and more, I really wanted to be in that decision maker seat and drive towards mission success rather than 
being, you know, kind of limited to being an advisor. Um, but that's a really big jump to make. And so I've been very fortunate to have a number of key mentors throughout my career that really helped me make that transition. Uh, and then on top of that, I'm really highly motivated um, to, to drive towards mission success for the warfighter. My brother is in the Army National Guard. My father uh, was enlisted in the Navy. I grew up around the Pentagon. So the military has been a pretty persistent presence in my life. That's interesting. And, and with that context, uh, given the fact that you're a trained attorney, that you you were in the procurement space, and, and now you're leading uh, this sort of uh, on the edge, uh, if you will, um, changing culture, really. Um, how how do you lead? Can you tell us a little bit more how you lead? And and given your career, what what are the characteristics that make an effective leader? So I mentioned this before, and I'll say it again. Trust between leadership and the workforce is the key to everything. I am driving towards substantial change for us to really take what we've been doing and fundamentally reestablish how we're getting after the technology and delivering it. That puts people outside of their comfort zone, you know, and, and there isn't this pre-established pathway forward. So in the absence of trust, the workforce isn't going to lean forward and make themselves you know, vulnerable to potential failures and setbacks. And as a leader, you have to, in my mind, embrace the idea that we're doing something that's never been done before. And so we are going to make missteps. But if you're agile and taking small iterations, that's okay, because it's not a massive setback and you can iterate and pivot and keep moving forward. Uh, the other piece I think that is so key and being a transformational leader is establishing urgency. You know, General Skinner calls it velocity of action to win. For me, it's my job to help every single person in the workforce connect with the mission, that they understand the role they play in being the provider of choice for hosting and compute for the warfighter. And if that isn't happening, if we're, we're not able to make that connection, then there is an absence of urgency that that people are just less motivated to lean forward. And when you're trying to change and transform, you have to have people leaning forward. What are the strategic priorities for DIS's hosting and compute center? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. What is the IT strategy for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC? How is it modernizing its IT systems and infrastructure? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Sylvia Burns, Chief Information Officer at the FDIC. As I understand it, you've made a quantum leap out of on-prem to cloud. 
using containerization. Can you tell us more about this journey and your cloud migration efforts? And what are some of the challenges you faced moving to the cloud? Well, um, it's funny that you use the word quantum leap because my my team actually um, came up with the name for the project as being called Quantum Leap. So um, what Quantum Leap is, is, is it's one part of our cloud strategy. So like I said, we're already investing in PaaS and SaaS solutions to help modernize certain systems. We also have our own infrastructure. So we have an on-premise data center in Virginia. We have a backup data center in Texas. And, um, you know, ultimately we would like to get those to the cloud. And so um, something that we're doing now, our quantum leap program is basically to set up our infrastructure as a service cloud environment and migrate some of the things that we have, some of these legacy systems that we have sitting in our on-premise data centers to actually migrate them, um, containerize them and migrate them to our new infrastructure as a service environment. Challenges with that. So, so th- this project is not even a project, it's a program. It's multifaceted. There are many moving parts to it. Some of it is just about setting up the base infrastructure. Like I'm talking, this is, this is part of the highway that I was talking about. So get, making sure that that is set up properly and that um, right now my team is, um, they're looking at setting up the environment by establishing what are the patterns, what are the repeatable patterns that we see in the environment that allow us to build it kind of like build once, use many times concept. So figuring that out, getting kind of your base um, tier zero capabilities put in there, after which you can start putting in some more of the advanced technologies. All that is part of it. Obviously, the process of successfully containerizing the legacy application, moving it to the cloud environment, and ensuring that you don't lose anything in terms of the data exchanges that need to happen with that now containerized system in the cloud and other systems that that system has to integrate with. That's a complexity that has to be very carefully thought through. So we have a, um, as part of Quantum Leap, we have a data orchestration an integration effort going along with that so that we're looking at the data end of it and many other things. Something that we're trying to do as part of our Quantum Leap program is also to establish a cloud data management and analytics environment um, in, in that environment. And that's because like FDIC is a very data oriented organization. It's all about the data at FDIC. There's a need for advanced analytical tools, the ability to spin up or down an environment so that, you know, whatever analytical effort needs to happen can happen freely by the people who need to do it, the researchers. Um, So that's part of what we're all setting up. But like I said, we have to do all the right things to plan and build the highway for all the things that we want to use it for over the next few decades. And from from there, you know, then it'll be in use. It'll be solid and secure. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, 
I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sharon Woods, Director of the Hosting and Compute Center, The Hack, at the Defense Information System, DISA. So I want to transition. You mentioned in the previous segment, uh, Sharon, the vision of The Hack. And I'd like for you to sort of delve a little deeper and maybe uh, outline some of your key priorities for The Hack over the next couple of years. So... I'll go back to the um, to the tooling part of this, and I'll mention processes and people as well. But we want to be that provider of choice for hosting and compute. So let me unpack what that means. Uh, right now, we're responsible for data centers, private cloud, and public cloud. And historically, there was this myth in my mind of everyone's going to cloud. And it's this binary choice between data center and public cloud. And, you know, that's to me a misunderstanding of the technology. There's way too much diversity in the department's mission for only one kind of technology to meet all of those requirements. But for the hack, in order to provide what the warfighter, what our customers need, we need to make those technologies work in a more interoperable way. We need them to be unified so that the options are not just there, but that they work in a way that's orchestrated uh, and, and gives the most to the mission partner as possible. Uh, you can't get there without technicians of the future. Uh, you can't get there without using agile methodologies or you move too slow or you have folks that just aren't properly trained in order to drive towards that change. So, you know, right now we have data centers and private cloud and public cloud. I'm really looking to transform the entire operation. So we have hybrid cloud centers that offer all forms of hosting and compute. I'm, I'm wondering if there are uh, obviously maybe you could elaborate on some of the external trends and internal drivers that kind of inform your strategy and why the hack is doing what it's doing? Yeah. So on drivers, there are both internal and external drivers. And I'll take a step back and say, you know, when you follow agile methodology, you cannot develop and implement the technology in a vacuum. One of the fundamental tenets of agile is that there is continuous user feedback, that you are involving the user in the development and implementation process 
from the very, very beginning, and that they are a stakeholder at the table driving that as opposed to an afterthought. So from an internal driver standpoint, you know, the workforce is best positioned to understand how things are working, whether the technology is working and achieving the intended result. And so, you know, I have to listen to the workforce. And so I have to have them be in a position to drive us forward. So that's one element of continuous user feedback is what the folks on the ground are experiencing that are responsible for putting this technology in place. But from an external standpoint, we have customers with highly diverse needs, and we need to be listening to them and actually incorporating them into the development and deployment process, right? Again, that, that is just one of the underlying tenets of, of agile practices. And so I see those essentially being the feedback loop um, it's it's two halves of a whole. There's the internal driving uh, voice, and then there's the external driving voice. Uh, in, in terms of you know kind of external um, uh, things that kind of inform all of this, again, it goes back to listening to the user, but from a little bit of a different position. It just became clear over time when you paid attention to what industry is doing, and then in listening to the customer. It isn't just one hosting and pla uh, compute platform. You can't just have one thing available and expect that to meet all of the requirements. And so one of the ways that our vision and mission was shaped is all around optionality, that our job is to be the honest broker, to provide a spectrum of choices, to work with our customers, to see, and it may not even be one platform. It could be, you know, private cloud and public cloud or data center and private cloud. And so, you know, working through that conversation uh, is, is super critical. Uh, I, I think being an honest broker is one of the things that's going to make us successful. Sharon, would you tell us more about the joint warfighting cloud capability program? What services will be provided to the warfighters, even at the edges? Any status on the program you'd like to share today? Yeah, so right now, the, the Joint War Fighting Cloud Capability, or JWCC, um, acquisition is, is in the process of that, that uh, evaluation and getting to contract awards. So as I'm sure you know, I can't discuss the procurement specifics, but that said, I, I certainly can delve into the requirements um, and how we got to where we are. So JWCC is the effort subsequent to what was Jedi Cloud for those listeners that remember uh, Jedi Cloud. It was a, a single award, IDIQ, and it, it got kind of mired uh, in litigation. The technology changed over time during that entire process. And the department, I think, was continuously introspective and, and doing that market research to understand what makes sense. So when we started it in 2017, the multi-cloud orchestration capability was nowhere near what it is today. And it just became clear that we needed to pivot our acquisition strategy and focus on awarding contracts to multiple vendors so that we can reap the benefit of all those different capabilities. In terms of the scope of JWCC, it includes all classification levels, so unclassified, secret, and top secret, 
It also includes integrated cross-domain, meaning that you can move up and down classification levels securely. It also includes cloud that's available, not just in the United States, but cloud that can be accessed um, outside the United States, OCONUS, and also at the tactical edge. So where the military operates, oftentimes there are no communications. There isn't a persistent connection to the cloud. And so how do you make cloud work at the tactical edge? And so that is a problem set um, that JWCC definitely will deliver against. What are some of the challenges? And maybe this is since it's in its evaluation stage, but if you can think beyond the procurement, what are some of the challenges to realizing the vision of this program? I would offer that no one in the federal government has implemented a hybrid cloud, multi-cloud effort on the scale of the Department of Defense. And not only are we having to do this for our decision makers, where uh, a lot of our workforce is within the United States, but we're having to do it for the military and all of the unique conditions um, that they fight under. And so I think, you know, that's certainly a challenge, but, you know, that's okay. Again, the hosting and compute center is all about change and driving transformation. And so that is a problem we want to go after and we will deliver it against it. I'm really confident partnering with our industry partners, with those cloud vendors that we're going to get this done. Uh, you know, Sharon, you mentioned a couple of times the, the term or the phrase technicians of the future or technician of the future. I was hoping you could elaborate for our audience. What do you mean by that? How did you come up with that kind of uh, that that kind of idea concept, and what are you doing around workforce enablement? Yeah, so technician of the future, it it is about taking a historical mindset and and moving it in a different direction. So historically, a lot of the disciplines around hosting and compute, if you think about database or server or even you know sort of software development. There were groups of, of workforce specialized in that discipline, and they worked in their area. And so it was very stovepiped and very, um, uh, very siloed. The technology changed. The technology became a lot more fluid, right, between hybrid, so uh, interactions between data center and cloud, and then with multi-cloud. You have to have a workforce that's comfortable with operating in all of those different technology domains, not just one particular area. So technician of the future is really about upscaling the workforce. It's about helping them expand beyond their discipline. So they become not just multidisciplinary, but then also operate in a cross-organizational way. I've, I feel very strongly that, you know, one of the keys to transformation and change is, is what I call spontaneous creativity, where you get a bunch of folks in a room with different skill sets. They come from, you know, different parts of the organization, and it, it creates this um, kind of primordial goo where all of a sudden different ideas pop out that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. So technician of the future is not just about skilling them, but it's about positioning the workforce to interact in a way that maybe they weren't before. 
So, you know, following up on that, how are you, Sharon, working with your end users and customers so to anticipate and ensure your solutions and services meet their needs and improve their mission readiness, which is essential? And uh, once again, I'd really like you to tell us more about how you're leveraging sort of the agile method in making this happen. Yeah, so I think one of the important factors in in leveraging continuous user feedback is using automation to do that because, you know, our our customer is the entire Department of Defense. And so, you know, collecting that data only manually and trying to triage that manually um, is completely unrealistic, especially to operate at speed. So we have been using Salesforce to collect all of those different uh, customer interactions, and some of the key themes. And what the technology lets you do from a, a customer relationship management standpoint, it can apply analytics across all those different engagements. And so common themes, common problem sets start to emerge because we have to be able to synthesize you know, what is relevant to a vast majority of the department because we are a enterprise provider and and really need to hit as much of the customer population as possible. So there's a strategy you see around, whether it's multi-domain or, and I want to talk about the joint all-domain command and control vision that DOD is pursuing. I was wondering if you could just give us a high-level overview of what this actually means to the layperson and how critical is a robust cloud computing fabric to realizing the vision of JADC2? Yeah, so um, JADC2 or the the joint all-domain command and control initiative uh, is all about interoperability of our C2 system. So all across the globe, the department collects data, processes data, and gets data into decision makers, into the hands of the warfighter um, so that they can execute the mission, right? So these are, that's C2 system, but there's many of them and they're quite disparate. And so JADC2 aims to create interoperability so that data collected and whether it's various places or different types of data, that we're able to correlate it and make better decisions, more informed decisions and quicker decisions. In order to do that, in order to do something with all of that diverse data that is scattered across the globe, you have to have a global hosting and compute fabric upon which that data sits. And so the more the hack can provide standardized commodity hosting and compute, the more that JADC2 is going to be able to use that as a springboard to start all of that data analytics and interoperability that they're going after. Yeah, I was wondering, as I was preparing for our conversation, why is, you know, pursuing a hybrid cloud approach so important? And more, more importantly, having optionality uh, because of the breadth and depth of DOD's mission set. Yeah, so um, I'll I'll use an example where uh, it's it can be a little surprising to folks because uh, one of the things that we're responsible for is also mainframe technology, and people hear that and think, oh, well, that's some legacy capability where there's this gigantic mainframe in a room and punch cards, and so you know clearly we need to get out of that business. Um, but it is actually an important option for some of our customers. If you look at the banking industry. Uh, Mainframe is especially well-suited to host enormous amounts of data 
and to process an enormous amount of transactions. And so that makes sense within banking and all the financial transactions that they need to process. Uh, the Department of Defense has a very large workforce and there are quite a few transactions that happen um, around pay uh, and personnel, for instance. And so there is a place for mainframe technology you know, within that uh, use case. And so with hybrid, you know, if we weren't looking at how do we integrate all the different hosting and compute platforms across that entire spectrum, we'd be missing the boat on really meeting the requirements of some of our customers. And so that's why hybrid is so important. You can't become the provider of choice. You can't provide best value solutions if you're only providing some of them. When fundamentally the technology is a spectrum of capabilities, it isn't just one or the other. How is the hack using cloud adoption accelerators? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center of This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. First up, moving to the cloud. An introduction to cloud computing and government by Professor David Wild of Southeastern Louisiana State. Your report and research identified eight fundamental elements that are vital to enabling the cloud concept to not just exist, but to grow to its fullest potential. Would you outline those eight fundamental elements of cloud computing? Well, uh, the first is you have to have universal connectivity. You have to be able to connect to cloud resources from wherever you are. It has to be accessible. Uh, it has to be reliable, and reliability is a is a huge issue today. Imagine if you're in the federal government and your agency information may not be available for any length of time. The fourth element is interoperability and user choice. And what I mean by that is that you have really a, a choice of what platform, what device you're going to be accessing the cloud from. What that means is that I can access the same computing resources, see the same interface, be able to have the same computing power regardless of what type of machine, what type of operating system, or where I'm located. From a value perspective, what that also means is the shelf life of our computing resources we're used to today in our businesses and in government and in our personal lives. The day you take the, the computer out of the box, it's out of date. Well, with cloud computing, that's not going to be the case because as long as you have the web browsing capabilities that are current, you can access the most current versions of, of software. And it really also rolls into the fifth element, which is security. You know, there's, there's kind of this mentality from an IT perspective that if I hold the data within my organization, it's going to be more secure than if it's located off-site. Well, as we've seen with uh, disasters and so forth, you need to have that redundancy built in. The sixth element deals with privacy, and privacy is certainly at the forefront of concerns with cloud computing. It's often one of the potential vulnerabilities that critics of cloud computing can attack the whole cloud idea on because there is this 
concept that there's going to be the capability to hack into data more easily and so forth. What we find is that oftentimes we inflate our organization's own security capabilities. And by doing so, we kind of fool ourselves into saying we have a much more secure environment than our competitors, than our other agencies, and and so forth. Well, uh, truth be told, uh, because the, the cloud computing vendors, they invest massive resources in not just data security measures, but physical security measures and redundancies. And so what we've seen is that from a privacy perspective and from a security perspective, cloud offers a better way of computing. The seventh value deals with the economics, and as we've talked about before, computing resources can last longer via a cloud model. We're not having to buy and procure every server, every bit of capacity that we ever need. Even though storage is unbelievably cheap today, we can rationalize where we store data, how we store data, how it's accessible through the cloud model. And so what we've seen is that the early implementations of cloud computing, both in the private sector and in the public sector, have significant, significant ROI uh, built into them. The final thing is sustainability. This is a little bit of a concern, and one of the reasons that there sometimes is more of a hybrid model of cloud computing where, well, I'm going to engage with an outside vendor for cloud storage, for programs, and so forth, but I want to maintain some resources on site. So one thing we've seen is that there is a push toward the bigger players, the more established players. Uh, I can invest my resources with them and know I have a much more stable and sustainable model to follow and work with them for the long term. More information on this and other centered resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sharon Woods, Director of the Hosting and Compute Center, The Hack, at the Defense Information System, DISA. I want to switch gears a bit to some of your early successes. And where I'm going with that is the container as a service uh, offering that you guys have stood up. Can you tell us more about it and what are the tools uh, that consist presently for folks to, to leverage? Yeah, so containers as a service was something we kicked off 
you know, right away. We were stood up October 1st of last year, and in November, we actually kicked off the Containers as a Service initiative. So uh, I think for the most part, you know, folks in this area are familiar with Kubernetes or containers and, and that idea of kind of having a, a box, if you will, that um, applications sit inside. And, and that's a very modern standardized technology that is most often associated with the cloud. Our proposition was that that is a modern technology that even applications in the, in the data centers should be able to take advantage of because it's servers in the data center, it's servers in the cloud provider, provider's data center. And so why can't we bring that technology to the data center and reap the benefits of that modern technology? Um, one of the um, philosophies or, or one of the constraints that I put on the hack is that we don't start new projects unless they can get from ideation to delivery of a minimum viable product within six months. And that is, you know, very aggressive, but very doable. And so containers as a service was started in November. We delivered a, um, the, the prototype and, and working with our first customer uh, and in the March, April timeframe. So we certainly hit the date that we were striving to achieve, but we, we picked out a very specific use case. And this is really important for Agile. You have to have a narrow scoped um, use case or you bite off more than you can chew and you try to do too many things at once. So we picked uh, web servers. We said, you know what, rather than manually standing up a new web server and putting all the security configurations on it every single time for every single website with container technology, you can do it once and then in an automated way, push it out um, to all of those different websites. So when there are updates, you're updating in one place and then pushing it out and you're achieving speed and by using containers, they have so many security benefits right out of the box rather than us manually setting that up. And so we've seen immediate benefit from that. We uh, have been working uh, with a time and attendance system uh, that has a public website as our first use case. It has been successful. And so now we're looking at taking all of those lessons learned improving the capability and then looking at, all right, what are, what are some additional use cases we can get after so that we start broadening the scope of how we can use CAS. Mm, that's great. Thinking about this project, how does it exemplify in your mind, the unification of modern technology and the data center hosting and compute kind of angle? Yeah. Uh, so not only was the technology hybrid where you're taking a modern cloud capability and putting it in a traditional data center, but the workforce was also operating in this hybrid model, if you will, because I have cloud experts, I have data center experts, and typically they don't work together. But for this particular technology you know, challenge that we were going after, I took some of the cloud experts and had them serve as consultants to a team that actually came out of the data centers. And so together they learned um, and got up to speed on how container technology works. And then that data center workforce was able to layer containers in the data center. So I'd mentioned before what technician of the future, there's the multidisciplinary aspect. And I will say for that data center workforce, you know, they were upskilled. They did learn new technology that they hadn't been exposed to. 
But that's also the nature of cross-organizational behavior, where you bring folks together in an unexpected way and then have these results that are more than the sum of their parts. That's a great point. And the next program I wanted to talk about was the Hacks Infrastructure as Code efforts. Would you tell us more about that, some of the benefits of having this service? Any updates uh, in terms of the cloud adoption accelerators that you're pursuing? Yeah, so, you know, it's important you know, for the hack to be that provider of choice. We have to do more than just offer the spigots of commercial cloud, for instance, if you will, or, or data center um, or private cloud. We need to be offering enterprise accelerator so that we can help our customers ingest those capabilities as quickly and as uh, well as possible. One of the efforts that we did to be one of those accelerators is infrastructure as code. So IAC takes what we discovered in working with customers as a um, multi-month, multi-week, I mean, I'm talking 38-week process to set up an environment in the cloud, layer on privileged identity, put the security policies in place. That alone uh, was taking you know, 30 plus weeks and we were able to shrink it down to two to four hours. Uh, and, and the way you're able to do that, the way we did it was using the platform services within the cloud providers um, you know, suite of capabilities and it in an automated way, almost the what we call you know, push button, get banana, where you set it up so that it can, it can set up that environment and then it does it in an automated fashion. And obviously the economies of scale, the speed, the benefit that you get with that is huge just from the time constraint alone, let alone it, it creates consistency. It's all pre-configured. And one of the things we did was get as much of it pre-accredited as possible. And accreditation can be a pretty painful process for those folks that are familiar with it. Um, in the department. And so for customers to be able to take that capability and know that they've already had a portion of the security requirements approved is huge in terms of getting that into production. So we initially started with AWS and Azure, and we have three-year um, uh, authorizations to operate ATOs um, so those are three years long, but then we expanded it into Google and we've been working uh, with Oracle. So again, it's all about optionality and giving our mission partners, our customers, a chance to figure out what works best for their particular requirements. Yeah, so um, Sharon, how do you build a work culture that values data as a strategic asset? And what are some of the key challenges just transforming uh, towards a more data-centric culture that, that really helps your efforts as well? Yeah, so I think for some of the specifics, I would defer to our acting chief data officer, Caroline Kaharski. Um, but I, I will say, and it's it's not too dissimilar from JADC2, which is all about this enormous amount of data scattered across the world that we're trying to take advantage of um, and have, op, you know, operate in a more interoperable way. You can't do that without that global hosting and compute fabric. So outside of C2 systems, you know, the department certainly has um, a very large corpus of data that goes beyond C2 systems. And so DISA does have a CDO office, and they're really driving that data strategy forward. 
And the hack, our role in that is providing the underlying foundation, the springboard so that um, the data is better positioned to be moved around and to be interoperable because of the standard hosting and compute foundation that we're providing. You know, the follow-on question I have is around what you've kind of alluded to earlier on, and that is the how have you sought to create a culture of innovation? And, and more importantly, when you're standing up something new, um, challenging old ways of doing business, energizing IT, and creating a sense of urgency, as you so eloquently put it, how are you doing that? What are some of the challenges you face? What are some of the things you've learned? So, I, you know, one thing I did encounter, especially when I said things like, we're not going to start a new project unless we can get to MVP in, in six months or less, is there's just a level of disbelief. You know, people are comfortable with where they're at, and it's hard for them to imagine doing something so drastically different. So you do have to internally identify, you know, not just your champions that have the existing skill set, but the folks that are really hungry to expand beyond their boundaries. You blend those people together like we did with containers as a service, and they achieve something like developing a brand new capability in less than six months. And that says something to the workforce. You know, another example uh, that I that I have within the private cloud area, we were having to deprecate the mill cloud 2.0 environment. Um, that's a, a private cloud. So it was a cloud instance that uh, was within the data center. And uh, not only that, but stand up a new capability of private cloud that we call Stratus. And the timeline for that was really aggressive. We were having to go from a starting point of January and completing by June. And we actually completed about a week early. Uh, I think the workforce was a little skeptical about that, but we went all hands on deck and kind of activated people that normally wouldn't have been involved in a project like that. So when you start getting successes so quickly out of the gate, I think the workforce, they, they pay attention to it and they see that they can participate, that this isn't limited to just a few people. This is for everybody. And so I think that's one of the key ways to kind of move off that status quo baseline and start pushing forward. I want to go towards security. And what are you doing uh, around the efforts of the zero trust security architecture? And how does DevSecOps factor into the efforts in, in any way? Yeah, so I think where DevSecOps really factors into it is speed and standardization. Um, DevSecOps is all around establishing a pipeline so that you're, you're pushing code through that pipeline and it's compiling applications, but in a standard way, in an automated way, rather than you know having to manually do it and make sure that every single time you do it, all the conditions are the same. When you're able to stand up applications that quickly, you're able to take advantage of your data more quickly. You can also inject security checkpoints, which really starts, um, I think, overlapping with zero trust, where you want to understand, is this application secure? And so as part of the pipeline, you can pause um, the compiling of the pipeline and say, okay, let's do a checkpoint and see if we have X, Y, and Z in place. Do we? Okay, let's keep pushing it down the pipeline. So I think where DevSecOps, uh, you know, an area where the hack um, is playing is, is all around improving security and helping uh, customers achieve speed 
so that a zero trust gets in place, you know, one is able to benefit from the other. You know, you pointed out in my conversation with General uh, Skinner also, it came up, automation is a key uh, agency uh, goal. And I was wondering, how uh, are you leveraging automation? Could you kind of give us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we're, we're using automation in a variety of ways right now. I think one of the challenges that I've seen is that there are too many manual processes. So there's way too much variability in things being set up, for instance, especially repeatable activities, which, you know, those are the kinds of activities that should be automated. We've had folks that establish automation uh, at a very local level and the automation techniques that they're using are not widespread because not everybody knows about them. So one of the um, automation capabilities that we've been setting up is just a a GitLab environment, right? An an open repository where people can put the automation that they have developed, put it up there for people to collaborate, to make it better, and then to use it. Again, you know, 2000 people, it's tricky to make sure that everybody knows about something. So some of it is just exposing what has been automated to everybody and really reap the benefits of what you know, a group of people perhaps discovered together. Um, You know, another way that we've been getting after automation is using things like, um, you know, Red Hat Ansible automation. This all goes around how do you set up the data centers in particular uh, in an automated way? How do you use platform as a service within the cloud and infrastructure as code, for instance, in an automated way? So it's it's very multi-pronged on all the use cases that could be automated. And then by having that open repository, we make sure that we're communicating that across the workforce so that as many people as possible can take advantage of it. And Sharon, you're doing a lot of really innovative things for a very, in a very, um, you know, complex environment, complicated environment. I'm wondering, are there any other key uh, accomplishments you'd like to highlight, and what does the future hold for DIS's hosting and compute center? Yeah, so I mentioned Mill Cloud too, and certainly that was a huge success. Uh, one of the other successes that we've had, and it delivered on that six-month period of time, is a tool we call AdApp. But, but what it is is an automation tool, so that in order to get into the cloud environment, you know, it's more than just setting up your cloud environment. You have to actually be provisioned into it. And then there's this whole government process of, you know, placing task orders and and processing the finances and everything around that. So one of our big successes was developing the tool that automates that process so that we do have speed to mission. Because if you have a contract like JWCC and a contract award, but no ability to bridge that gap from an awarded piece of paper to setting up an environment in the cloud, you really haven't done anything but set up a piece of paper. And so, you know, that is also a success. Just fundamentally at its core, we are an action organization. You know, we set up our action plan. It has 10 strategic goals. We have objectives within those. All of them are operating on very tight timelines. We're holding ourselves accountable for hitting those milestones, not just the six-month milestone, but also looking at quality um, and and speed at a higher level, too, of of the strategic goals are are pretty broad. And so how do you break that down into chunk-sized pieces? So I think for us, the future holds um, continuous change. 
some areas I'm excited about is Tactical Edge and Oconus Cloud. I think that's an area where the department really needs more than what it has right now, um, especially when you have initiatives um, like JADC2 happening. Uh, but I'm excited to get after all of it. I think uh, maybe one of the challenges is controlling my appetite for change. So, you know, before we close, I would like for you to maybe tell us a little, maybe three takeaways you want our listeners to know about the hack. So I think the the biggest takeaway I would love folks um, to really internalize is that we're honest brokers. You know, we're we're not trying to push people into any one particular area. We are trying to make the technology work in a way that makes sense and then work with our customers to help them figure out what kind of technology they want to consume. And we're listening to them so that we know where we need to go moving forward. What new things do they need? How do they need things to be operating? So really the most important thing I would say is that you know the hack is an honest broker and hopefully um, that came through in the conversation. Another big takeaway is empowering the people and technician of the future. You know, the hack is not just focusing on technology. We're focusing on our workforce because that's how we're going to be successful. You know, trust amongst leadership in the workforce. That's how we're going to be successful. So you can't get after delivering the technology without having an empowered workforce uh, in place. And then the other one I would mention is speed. You know, we are moving fast. We are using agile methodologies across the board and trying to refine those more and more. So, you know, honest broker, uh, uh, optionality and speed to capability uh, and, and using Agile. That's great. I was wondering if you give some advice. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Go be a bureaucracy hacker. That's what I would say. You, you really have to believe in the mission and connect to the mission because there is a lot of bureaucracy in the federal government and it can be... Um, very disenfranchising. You, you you just you encounter a lot of barriers, and you have to be really hungry to move forward. We have to get better at our processes. We have to achieve more speed to mission. And so, for folks that are looking to get into public service, I would just ask that you you come hungry and ready to hack the bureaucracy because that's what we need. That's a wonderful way to end. Sharon, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule today uh, to join us and, and tell us more about the, uh, This Is Hack. But I also want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Sharon Woods, Director of the Hosting and Compute Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. 
urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.